This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life, and the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day, and I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. This podcast is brought to you by the business of fatherhood. Thank you for listening. And now that I got your attention with that weird but awkward sponsorship, that is me. I just want to remind you that I also have a second podcast called The Business of Fatherhood. It is a five daily a week. It is a five day week. Nope. We're going to get it. We're going to get it right here. It is a five day a week short daily podcast. Boom. Got it. Taking some of the topics that I've learned here incorporating them into business life. And so if you like the content we bring here on Military Veteran Dad, head on over to your favorite podcast app. Check out, it's called The Business of Fatherhood. And if you like what you hear, go ahead, leave us a rating and review over there. Trying to grow that show, trying to get that show out there to more and more dads, because as you've learned in this podcast, there is so much about fatherhood that other dads need to know. And this other podcast is my way of connecting with a deeper and a wider audience of dads and helping them come home. Dory one, this is Fire Team Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Welcome back to Military Veteran Dad. This is episode 122. And as promised, if you listened to last week's episode, this week's episode does not disappoint. I gave a little bit of a teaser last Friday about what was going on. Man, do we got a full round of in-your-face good advice that every veteran needs to hear. Whether you're suffering from PTSD or whether you're in denial about PTSD, this episode is going to move a mountain for you and help you see it in a way that I guarantee you probably haven't heard in as blunt as you've heard it in this episode. Couple advisories. There is swearing pretty profusely in this podcast episode. So if you are listening with kids, this is not the episode to have them in the background. This is an episode to put between your ears where they can't hear or you're in the car by yourself. But this episode with Virginia Cruz is something that is really great to hear because Virginia is a licensed professional counselor, national certified counselor specializing in military issues and combat related trauma. She provides crisis intervention, evidence-based treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, moral injury, depression, combat operational stress, and other diagnoses. She is certified clinician in cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure therapy and has 20 years of experience serving active duty, veterans, military retirees, and family members. And this episode is an hour and 40 minutes, so I am not going to ramble any further. Let's get right to it. And if you want to hear my big takeaway... 
hang on to the very end of this episode, and I'll be back with you to share. Welcome to the podcast, Virginia. Hey, thank you for having me, Ben. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited just to swear a little bit, because based on the conversation that we had just getting started before we hit pre-record, this conversation is going to go into a lot of great places. And I would just like to start off, what is the title of your book? Because this will kind of set the stage for where we need to go. <laughs> Thank you so much. So uh, I appreciate the introduction. So my, my book is called The Soldier's Guide to PTSD. And you can find an excerpt. Your listeners can find a free excerpt at thesoldiersguide.com. And the subtitle is How to No Shit Reclaim Your Life. And you didn't have the like the, the hide it with the BS label. You put the no shit way to reclaim your life. Go into that subtitle of like, what about that abrasiveness that you said you had to put the pure rawness of what it takes to do that right there on the cover? You know, Ben, so I'm a therapist now, but I didn't start out that way. So I started out as a soldier, still am a, a reserve officer. Don't judge me. But, and you know, and the one thing that is really missing, and when I'm talking with, with my clients, the one thing that we were really missing was the no shit truth. You know, really, just, fuck, just cut through the bullshit with the PTSD. I remember when I first thought I had PTSD, and, and then after I first got my diagnosis, I, you know, I went to Dr. Google, scared the fuck out of myself, it was terrifying. Um, went online, found all of this clinical jargon, got myself a version of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual version five. Tried oh, to that sounds out. like something it would just really just go crazy <laughs> on. You're like, I don't even know if I should be here anymore. I feel sounds here. I should spontaneously get busted by now. <laughs> Brother, no joke. And um, it didn't explain it in a way that I can understand. And I'm smart as fuck. And if I'm reading it, and I, I'm not picking up what they're putting down, that it's not written in a way that can be understood. And so every guide on PTSD and every workbook and, and every article, it's generally written by clinicians for clinicians. And we are, and, and I love, I love being a therapist. There's nothing I would rather do, but we are the biggest echo chamber. Nobody's reading your fucking dissertation paper. Nobody's reading your articles. You know, people are going to Google. And there was no soldier to soldier guide on PTSD. It was all written by clinicians for clinicians. And so when I wrote this book, um, I wrote it from, from the point of view of a soldier. So after I got licensed, um, you know, back in the early, you know, 2010s, I got licensed and uh, I decided to become a therapist. I actually got a gig teaching at an inpatient hospital. And I started teaching active duty service members with PTSD and alcoholism and depression, anxiety, the things that generally come with PTSD. And uh, they gave me a, a curriculum that was terrible. And I was like, you know what, if I'm going to, it, nobody becomes a therapist for the money or the fame, especially after a career in the military. So I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm in this to, to no shit change the world. Because why not? That's why you do this podcast. That's what I do. I had to rewrite my story because my story used to be I was a dumb farm boy from Wisconsin that was never going to do anything special. Now I'm a farm boy from Wisconsin that's going to help change the world. Bam. Smoking. <laughs> but, you know, and then when I, yeah, so I redid, you know, I went ahead and I just revamped and, and started writing my own classes. 
And the thing that was really missing is what are we not talking about with PTSD? Yeah, I can give you the rundown, but we're not talking about rumors and myths. We're not talking about what PTSD isn't, you know, because there are all these very persistent rumors that just fuck with your head about PTSD. Number one being that you can never recover from it. And that's absolutely not true. There's no data to support that, but but we'll, we'll put a bookmark there. Um, We're not talking about how do we talk to our families about getting the help we need. We're not talking about how to, how to make boundaries. How do I make a good boundary if I'm still on active duty? How, what do I do if I have a toxic boss? What do I do if I work for an asshole? How do I make friends? And this is something that you cover very well in your platform, Ben, but how do we make friends when, you know, one of the major criterion uh, criteria of PTSD is avoidance. Everything about avoidance, we want to just get into our shell. How do how do we make friends without seeming weird or being afraid that we're going to have a meltdown in the Walmart? You want to know what the weirdest thing that takes a lot of practice? Ask yes. another dad for his number. Yeah. Like that's the ultimate like moment. Like I've had a mo- couple of them um, that I'm up on a sledding hill or at a park. Like, hey, what's your number? So we can text after we get after we leave. And it's it's weird saying it out loud because it's not something naturally part of the society culture. And I come home and I'm like, hey, honey, I got another dad's number. Like, it's just this weird thing. But like, to me, that's like the graduation moment. When you have the courage to ask other man for his cell phone number so you can communicate with them, then you've reached a point where you're not afraid of the rejection. You're not afraid of what could happen. And you're excited about what could happen from being this new friend to the, this guy you just met. Yeah. And that's being hard. That is hard to do them without without having PTSD, yeah, without PTSD, yeah, you know, and without, you know, depression, anxiety, and all the shit that comes with it. Um, that's very difficult. And so th- this book and why I said it's, you know, how to no shit reclaim your life. It's a short book. I mean, it's here it is here. I mean, it's pretty short. You can sit, you can read it in one, one sitting. Um, you can, we're, we're recording the audio book uh, this week. And I think it's going to be just, just over an hour. I mean, it's short, um, but it should be. I don't need to read somebody's PhD dissertation on moral injury to figure out how to unfuck myself. I need to be able to identify what it is, identify what it's not, figure out what to do about it, figure out what, what are the evidence-based treatments so I can unfuck myself instead of wasting my time and you know talking about my mommy issues or being on a couch or some shit. How can I... How can I no shit get the help that I need? How can I create healthy boundaries, have good social support, and come ahead stronger than I was before? And that doesn't take 500 pages. That takes that takes like 100 pages in really big font with pictures. And if if we're not breaking it down, we're, we are we. And when I say we, I mean the therapist community. We're failing. We're failing soldiers. We're failing. We're failing Marines. You know, Coasties, the whole, the whole shebang, we're failing everybody. And we're not talking to people. We're just not putting down what people can put, what can pick up. And especially, you know, the thing about PTSD and from my own experience is we don't know that our judgment's impaired when our judgment's impaired. Like, no shit. You know, when we're sick, we don't know it. We don't I mean, someone like I often describe my coaching, it happens almost regularly. The moment you tell someone, look over there, they look up and almost like wake up for the first time and they're like, it looks like a fucking frat party was here last night. 
But yet they never noticed that entire existence while they were going through. It's like this whole weird, like, psychological shift in their head. Like, whoa, look at all these fucking beer cans. Is this my life? Like, there is that initial, like, oh, shit moment when someone wakes up and realizes, whoa. And I'm sure you've seen it as well. When when someone wakes up, you're like, wow, this place is like a fucking party. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, talking about PTSD is my thing. Um, Because if I can recover from this, anybody can. Absolutely anybody can. Um, and we're not putting that message out there. And so my goal is to tell tell your dads who are watching, well, not your dad, but dads, your your dad audience, your dad fluencers, uh, which I love that term, by the way, because being being a dad is the ultimate influencer. And too many of us as veterans are not coming home. We're redeploying, we're going back to our families, but we're not coming home, we're not present. And we need to we need the no shit guide to know how to do that. You're talking about the genesis of this moment. So Military Infantry Conference 2018, I had an itch for a podcast, but didn't really believe I was the guy to do it. And I told my story to a military spouse and she started crying. And I was like, what just happened? And I realized that she told me that her husband came home from war, but didn't emotionally come home and is just on autopilot on the couch. And what I said resonated so deeply that I was like, I've got to do this. And three months later is when I launched. I really value you saying that. Um, You know, PTSD has, there are so many components to it. And one of the major uh, criteria we've already touched on a little bit is this idea of avoidance. Uh, So think about... That's the best way to explain this. Like, think about your feelings as a continuum. So you've got this, you know, this continuum along the line. And over here, you've got these feelings that you don't want to feel. So I've got feelings of shame and anger and um, and hate and guilt. And then you kind of go through the continuum. You get to this middle phase. You know, the, these kind of medium feelings, this numb I feel, ah, okay, ambivalence. And over here, you've got all these great feelings. You know, I feel good. I feel happy. I feel joy. I feel rainbows and sprinkles and unicorns and shit. And the idea with PTSD is it is a very, it is the most logical mental health disorder there is. Because PTSD is something, it's not something wrong with you. It is something that happens to you something that happens to you. It is a very logical reaction to a very abnormal set of circumstances. And so one of the most logical things that our brain does is it decides, you know what? I feel all these shitty feelings over here because who the fuck does? Who wants to feel shame and guilt and remember their buddy dying or remember their asshole commander who always wanted to go outside the wire or, you know, remember the redeployment um, you know, we- I didn't have friends, not because of PTSD, because I had a high school girl that said no. And my brain said, let's fucking avoid that for a while. And oh. meanless, that was 15 years later. I was still avoiding people because I didn't want to feel that rejection again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like it doesn't have to be like we often think it has to be these devastating things. But I mean, I had PTSD from virtual school for two months. Like there's these massive shifts of growing up that happen that create these experiences that you got to work through. And you and luckily I was hopeful enough to bra- embrace it versus running from it or even going into a depression. But anything like could oftentimes be that PTSD moment. And I'm sure you, have you heard it phrased as pr- post-traumatic growth disorder? Have you heard that? I have, phrase? I don't buy it. Um, I think post-traumatic growth, dis- not disorder, but post-traumatic growth. Um, I don't like the term and I'll tell you why. 
Uh, first of all, I don't like who it came from. It came from Martin Seligman, who uh, who created um, a program for the Army called Master Resiliency Theory. Well, here's the problem with master resiliency. There were really unintended second and third order effects. When and and one of the things that came out from that, and this is just, you know, this is just me as one therapist. You've seen, you know, probably like a thousand clients with PTSD. So it is what it is. But there are so many rumors that come with PTSD. And one of the, the most persistent rumors that was an unintended second order effect from master resiliency theory was if somebody has PTSD, that means that they're not resilient enough. They're not resilient enough. There's something wrong with them because they weren't able to uh, adapt and overcome and have this post-traumatic growth that we should have. And that's not a thing. That's not a thing. And, and, you know, I won't go into that, but in my book, if, if you're ever interested, there's a lot of very, very uh, divisive research on master resiliency theory. And I'm not a fan, but moreover, the un- another unintended second, th- third order effect here was this idea that was kind of promulgated as a result of this saying that, you know what, if somebody goes through this training and then they still have PTSD, they can't adjust to seeing their buddies brains blown out in front of them, then that must mean that they were fucked up before they got to the military. And brother, I have heard this from commanders. I've heard it from other psychologists, doctors, um, therapists like me. I mean, I, I've, I've heard these rumors far and wide and there was just no, no research to support that. So yes, I've heard of post-traumatic growth and I think it's more damaging than good. I appreciate you saying that because I never heard someone say it against it. And let me maybe removing the title of it. This is how I always framed it in my head. So I want to kind of maybe you can educate me and help me understand where I need to reframe it. Is it was always like you experience in a short amount of time, like five minutes, you experience 40 years of life that most people take 50 years to experience. You experience in five minutes. And your brain is just so overwhelmed with trying to process all that new information, it psychologically just locks it out to to try to process it. So you just try to avoid that area. But it's really about trying to look at it, find purpose in it, go through it. I often equate it to like a thousand piece snap on toolbox a lot of specialized wrenches in that five minutes. You don't really know what they're for. But 20 years down the road, like you find that one wrench, you're like, oh, man, that was that wrench that I learned in that mad, like the big PTSD moment. You just don't realize how it's all kind of just preparing you for something bigger. And it's about finding that purpose within that five minute experience that usually takes 50 years to experience. Is that incorrect? And I just labeled it wrong with PTSD or post-traumatic growth disorder? Uh, Well, for post-traumatic growth, um, I won't really speak to that. You know, I'm not a fan. I think it's more harm than good. I think I, I like the way that you described, you know, in five minutes, you know, a lot can a lot can go down in five minutes that may take 50 years to unpack. And that certainly is a lot of service members experience. Um, you know, trauma is defined, you know, in the DSM um, that, you know, that's that's kind of the, the big purple book that should be on every therapist's um, on every therapist shelf. And if it's not, you need to run. You need to run <laughs> away um, because that's that's not OK. So the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, defines it says there's a very narrow definition of trauma. They call it actual or threatened exposure to death, serious injury, or sexual violence. So again, death, serious injury, or sexual violence. 
actual or threatened exposure. So let's say, for example, um, you're on the FOB and every day you go out on a convoy, okay? Now, you're a smart cookie. You listen to your S2 and you know that convoys get schwacked every fucking day, every day. So a lot of things happen when you leave the wire. So your brain gets ready for one of three things, fight, flight, freeze. This is your body and brain's very natural reaction to a threat, fight, flight, freeze. And what the military does is it tries to train the freeze out of us. So I'm up, they see me, I'm down. I'm up, they see me, I'm down. This is why we do so many movement exercises. This is why, and you're a Marine. You, I mean, you've, you've been down this road. Yeah, I had, I had PTSD just from you saying, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down. Yeah, I'm sorry. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel like I remembered how much I sucked at playing that game. <laughs> yeah. You know, but the idea is we want to train the freeze out of somebody so that they can call in a perfect nine line when your buddy gets schwacked or somebody loses a leg and they're going to bleed out. We want to train the freeze out of you. But so when we're leaving the wire, you know, our body and our brain gets ready, um, gets ready. And a lot of things start happening. Our heart starts beating. Uh, and that's to move all the blood to our muscles because fight, flight, and freeze take a tremendous amount of energy. Um, all of our muscles start to tense up. Our eyes start to dilate. Think our frontal lobes are responsible for reason and logic. Those workers just shut down. Why? Because we're not going to Disney, bitch. We are no shit getting ready for war. You're not needing to take snapshots. That's why we have... Very significant. A lot of people who have PTSD have very significant memory loss when it comes to their trauma, or they don't remember large chunks of their deployment. Folks who are survivors of childhood trauma often don't remember huge chunks of their childhood. And that's because your brain has two jobs, brother. Number one, keep you alive. And that is his first and number one job. I say he, my brain's a he. Maybe you lucked out. I didn't. Number two, your brain's job is to make meaning whether you have all the information or not. I say again, to make meaning whether you have all the information or not. So when you leave the wire, your body and your brain is getting ready to get schwacked. And then you don't get schwacked. Your convoy never blows up. Lucky you. Then we come back and we, and we say all things like, oh, well, I don't, I don't deserve to have PTSD because my kid has a father now. I don't deserve to have PTSD because I have my legs. And, and one of the biggest lies that I have to overcome and, and educate folks on, and, I, and I, it's, it's just a lie, is that this idea that I don't deserve to have PTSD. And I'm like, bitch, I don't deserve to have flu. I don't deserve to have the flu. I'm charming as fuck. I'm really nice. I'm a good therapist. I help people. I have great neighbors, right? I don't deserve to have the flu. But guess what doesn't give a fuck? The flu. The flu doesn't care. HIV, you know, HIV doesn't care. Um, coronavirus doesn't care. PTSD doesn't care whether you deserve it or not. So that's why we have that actual or threatened exposure. So whether you leave the wire and you get schwack or you leave the wire every day and you don't, your body and your brain are reacting the exact same way to trauma. And so some people can adjust and a lot of us can't. And that's totally okay. And it takes an adjustment period after that.
I hope that answers your question. Maybe I just took you off topic. If I, if it I, definitely if I answers do just- my question. So the one that I've kind of got, since you were talking about that in the way you did, it, it reminded me of something that dads get haunted with, like, why did I live and he died? Or they just also, they get hung up on what did all of that shit just mean? And it's trying to figure out what was the legacy of their service. And one of my bigger theses of this whole podcast is most veterans get stuck in that thought versus switching to, oh, my legacy is actually my family. Once it's over, the shit's in the history books and there's not a goddamn thing you can do about it. And trying to figure out what it meant has no greater purpose in it whatsoever. You're not going to get any good questions from those loops that you keep running in your head. And I always say to dads, like, your best friend didn't come home so you could come home and be the best fucking dad you could be. But you have to know this stuff to go through it to be that kid, to be that dad. There's a dad out there that never gets to feel his father's or his kid's love again. You do. And you've got to go through that and all this this focus on the legacy of their service and the what it all meant and this macho stuff. Like, your only thing that matters once you're home is your family. Like, that's what's going to be generational. Nothing about, no one's going to remember your record Nate label in the military. Maybe if you get a Medal of Honor or something, but for most times, you're just a number within the books. Once it's over, it's over. But we get so stuck on that. So I'm wondering, when a dad gets stuck in that, where do you usually take him to try to get him into that switch of like, wake up? Oh, I, you know, I don't try to get folks into a switch to wake up. So, you know, I know that some people are really, you know, very motivated and can move on. Um, there's a shade of moral injury, though. I mean, there's a shade of PTSD that we don't talk about a lot. Um, and it, it's moral injury. And this is one of those research topics that the first time I read it, I'll never forget it. So this is um, research that's done by Brett Litz, um, absolutely brilliant researcher out of the VA and uh, in, in Boston, Massachusetts. And I think he messed Boston also, or no, Boston U. Anyway, to make a long story longer, moral injury is very different than PTSD. So more, with moral injury, so moral injury is really, it's soul damage. I, I want to kind of explain, I want to unpack that a little bit. So PTSD is the body and the brain's very natural reaction to, um, to feeling unsafe, to feeling unsafe. But moral injury is a different flavor. So this is, it's the result of experiences that when somebody violates our fundamental moral code. And that is very different. So I, I want to unpack that. So with three, with moral injury, according to Brett Litz and his research, there are three categories of moral injury. So we have combat loss. That's when we lose a buddy downrange or, you know, or, and then we have um, perpetration. So this is kind of war crimes, uh, which are unfortunately much more widespread than any of us talk about. War crimes happen across the services, across gender and gender identities, across MOSs. And there's a lot of war crimes things that be, could, would be considered war crimes by the Geneva Convention that are going on. And we witness them or, you know, we commit them and we need to talk about this. So those are acts of omission, commission, things we wish we'd done, things we should not have done. And then we have um, leadership betrayal, which happens a lot, unfortunately, downrange. So that's, that's the idea of, you know, that one commander who always seems to me a major who is going outside the wire every chance he gets because he hopes he gets shot at so he can get a combat action within. And, you know, those three areas of moral injury, we have a lot of good research about them. And 
they really can challenge our fundamental core values. And unfortunately, those aren't as easy to unpack as saying, you know, get the fuck over it. Um, and I'm not saying that's what you're saying. I want to be super clear. I'm not that guy. Um, but there, you know, a lot of a lot of folks do. A lot of folks do. And especially, you know, when it comes to, you know, these transgressive acts. So when somebody violates our acceptable boundaries of behavior, that really fucks with us, especially when we come back home. I could see it like the moment like that popped in my head was if you had to take the life of a, ch- a child that had a vest on that was getting ready to blow himself up and kill people around him. Like that was even justified and violates every fiber of your being that that was wrong. Yeah, there is a lot of there's a lot of research. And it, I mean, it probably wouldn't surprise you to know that somebody like me designed your boot camp. You know, if you ever read on killing um, by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, it is it's a really classic text because he does a good job of talking about all of the training and everything that goes into teaching a Marine, teaching a soldier, teaching a service member how to overcome their very natural instinct that, you know, billions of years of evolution not to kill another human being. You know, these are things that we see in pit bulls and cocks and things that are bred to kill their own species. I mean, this is very unnatural, you know? And so what Dave Grossman talks about even, and his his book's fucking brilliant, um, you know, just even the idea of changing, you know, it, it, you know, after World War II, they were studying a lot about, you know, how do we get people to kill people so we can save ammo? You know, because it all comes down to cost. Well, it used to. So what they did is they changed, instead of doing target practice with a bullseye, they started having human targets. Depending on where you went to boot, maybe you were one of those kids, you know, running around with the target, you know, behind the berm. Depends on how old you are. I don't even know if they do that anymore, but it used to be. And, you know, so they're human-shaped targets. Um, The way we dehumanize, uh, we dehumanize the enemy. We're not talking about shooting a dad or shooting a kid. We're talking about shooting the enemy. There's a lot of, you know, the military is working right now on its white supremacy problem. And, you know, writ large, we, you know, dehumanizing the enemy and and using racial slurs or whatever it takes, you know, that's just, that's part of it. You know, we, and the hard part about that is who joins the service? I mean, they call it the service for a reason, brother. Like a lot, a lot of folks joined after 9-11 you know, really wanted to, we want to serve our country. Again, nobody becomes a podcaster or, or a soldier or a Marine to, for the money or the fame. That's not a thing. You're doing it to change the world. We're idealistic. And we learn all of these amazing things in boot camp and in basic training, all of these values. Never leave a friend behind. Follow the Geneva Conventions. You know, follow the rules of engagement. Um, you know, bring your buddies home. And it's simple and it's pure, and it's important, and what makes us fucking love each other. But when bullets are flying, and shit hits the fan, and it's wild, wild west, there's nothing simple or pure about that. And it's really difficult for a lot of us to take what we do in combat, and then right-size that for when we go home. So yeah, shooting unarmed civilians, um, and we have to sometimes that's, you know, and 
let me tell you, brother, I, so I, I primarily traffic in war crimes. So I work uh, with a lot of folks in, in special communities and I happen to be one of the folks in the US who, who does that. I really, I work with folks who've either witnessed or committed war crimes. I mean, that's some, not something you put on your website, but you know, here we are. Um, how, how do we then come home and hold our child? You know, how do we I mean, do that, that just creates like a guilt almost feeling that rises up that like you don't feel like you deserve this moment because of that internal punishment. It, there was the thought that I'm wondering, I, I feel like it's going to be true. So I'm just kind of curious where it comes. So one of my core philosophies that I say that the Marine Corps taught me that I try to live my life by is you won't die in the battlefield of life by the big things. You're going to die because you miss the small things. Just like in war, it's that little tripwire that you're getting ready to clear the room, not the thing above, whatever, mile ahead. It's that little tripwire you didn't pay attention to. So it's those details. And I can imagine when you're in therapy with in the, with these uh, soldiers and Marines and everyone, that it's those little details that are probably the like the tip of the iceberg of these bigger things. Do you find that like it's the little de- And it's almost subconscious. So you have a hard time identifying what is little and what's big because it probably feels you probably put it all in one big bucket and you don't really know which is small and which is big do you find that like the same the same thing about little things within this idea of ptsd and moving through it there are a lot of little things that can fuck with us you know it's the little foxes that spoil the vine of course yeah i think i think what you learned is correct i think one of the you know one of the things that i see a lot with my clients and, and um this idea of moral injury, I think we do a lot, we talk a lot about uh, the fear and we don't talk a lot about shame. Um, this, so, so, you know, guilt and shame, you know, guilt, I did something wrong. You know, I hurt your feelings. I kicked a kitten. I robbed the bank. You know, we can make amends. We can make amends. Shame is I am something wrong. There is something fundamentally fucked with me. There's something wrong with me because only a monster would fill in the blank. Only an animal would fill in the blank. And, you know, PTSD, it really fucks with our fundamental belief system. That's actually one of the criteria. Um, It really fucks with our fundamental belief system about ourselves, other people, and the world. And uh, in one of the evidence-based treatments, we call them stuck points. A lot of stuck points will come up. And it really fucks with us in five fundamental ways. So in trust, trusting myself. How do I trust myself? How do I trust others? How do I trust a leader if I've had this kind of, you know, experience? How do I trust somebody? Um, Power, control. If somebody has power over me, does that mean that they're going to abuse it? Safety. How can I feel safe? Is the world a safe place anymore? Um, You know, can I be safe in my intimate relationships? Intimacy. I and this goes beyond sex, Um, but certainly, I mean, we know that libido and you know is definitely affected by PTSD. But intimate relationships. How can we be close with someone? How can I trust myself to be close with someone if I believe I'm just going to betray them? And then sell, you know, and again, that's our belief system and self-esteem. How is it I feel about myself? How is it I feel about other people? And, um, you know, we do a lot of focus, I think, on PTSD, 
But I think we don't focus on moral injury enough and kind of the full out. I think you do a good job about talking about this in your platform too, Ben. Kind of this full out, and I don't want to get too woo-woo, but kind of this soul damage and this sort of, it, it can be a real all-out existential crisis. What is the meaning for all this shit? And, and you you cover that you know, just a minute ago, you know, why did my buddy die? It's really it's it's hard to say, you know, well, he was a hero and, you know, they were a hero and they did it for their country. And then you're like, really, the fuck what? Really? You know, it's because my fucking fat ass major just wanted to get a piece of ribbon. You know, Napoleon famously said that men will do anything for a piece of cloth. He's talking about ribbons that people wear. People do some really fucked up shit for glory. And uh, and. You know, the, the further away from the flagpole we are, the more fucked up things can get, you know? So we see, we see a lot of rape in the battlefield. We, you know, we, we see things. We see indiscriminate killing. We see uh, a lot of bullying. You know, we might see a leader, for example, bullying a subordinate so badly that they, they commit suicide. That happens. And, uh, and then here's the thing. How do we, as the service member, how do we right-size that when we get home? It's really hard to say, okay, I'm one person in the field and I'm another person at home. But are we? And so we start distancing ourselves. And that goes back to this idea of, you know, the continuum with our feelings. We're trying to avoid all these feelings over here. And the idea is we don't want to feel the guilt and the shame and the fear and the anger. We just want to feel middle feelings and all these like happy feelings. But the brain doesn't work that way. That's, you know, kind of to really oversimplify neuroscience. So if things are on a continuum when it comes to our feelings, it attenuates on both ends in equal measure. Think of it like an accordion. So if I'm avoiding all the shit on this side, all these feelings I don't want to feel, what happens is I can't feel all these feelings over here. So now all of a sudden I'm not able to feel joy. I'm not able to feel happiness. My, my son or daughter will come up to me with a legitimate concern. And I know that, I, that they have every right to be upset, but I can't empathize with them. I can't feel them. Maybe I even think to myself, what the fuck are you crying for? And then I think, what kind of, what kind of monster says that? That's my child crying. And then you just proved the inner thought true, and then you just continued to add. You know what? You, you When you were doing the accordion analogy, there was something that I had to learn the hard way in my own life that you, an, you can't unconditionally love the others in your life until you unconditionally love yourself. But there's a clause to that, that it's the good, the bad, and the ugly and if you don't get those three down, all three of those, your accordion, your capacity to give love is limited because you've limited how much of your own life you've actually had the capacity to love. When, when uh, somebody goes through PTSD treatment, what we do is we, you know, we're intentionally leaning into the shitty thoughts, you know, all the shit we don't want to feel. And what happens you know, is that this expands also, we become able again to feel that. But until that happens, we're in that middle space called numb. And that's a, it's an absolutely terrifying place to be because what will happen in this numb place. And we know we're numb, even when we don't have the words for what's going on, we know something's fucked. 
We know something's wrong. We might not know what it is. We might not have the word, but we know that we're not feeling anything. You know, we go to, you know, we're not feeling joy. We're not feeling sad. We just feel numb. And we might start asking ourselves things like, am I a psychopath? Maybe we listen to way too much like murder porn, too many like murder podcasts. And we're like, am I a psychopath? You're not. If you're asking that question, you're not. Or Criminal Minds on Netflix, that's a dangerous So I had to stop oh, watching it because yeah. I was like, I'm having nightmares going to bed, thinking someone's going to jump into my bedroom and slash my throat. <laughs> Legit. Legit. That numb place is really terrifying place to be. Um, and this is where suicide comes in. Because what will happen to us is we're in a numb place. And, um, you know, here's, here's your trigger warning for your audience. This, this shit won't tickle. Um, but you probably need to hear it. And while it sounds like I don't have feelings, I promise you I'm saying this with a lot of love and compassion. I just, it's broke. So what happens when we're in this numb place? And I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about me. I'll own it. So I'm not reading anybody's mail. Calm the fuck down. Okay. So we're in this middle, really numb place here. And what will happen is we get this idea. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll commit suicide. And we feel something. Don't necessarily feel good or feel bad, but we feel something. We feel something. And our brain registers that. And it's like, okay, I've been in this middle numb phase for a really long time, but now I feel something. And that must be good because the opposite is being a fucking psychopath. So what happens a lot of times, or what happened to me, I'll own it, is starting to think about suicide. Using the thought of suicide as a coping mechanism. Some real shit talk, okay? We're thinking about, we're just thinking about, we tell ourselves, we'll tell our therapist, or we'll tell our friend, yeah, not, I would never do it. I'm just thinking about it. And we fantasize about it because it's, it's fun. Because just like any other coping mechanism, it works. Can we just get real for a minute? Drugs and alcohol work. Otherwise, people wouldn't drink and do drugs. Okay, thinking about suicide works. You know, if, if, my, if I can get rid of my problems, if all my problems are one swallow away, of course I'm going to jump in a bottle. That's why most of us do. Most common, what we call co-occurring disorder, PTSD is alcohol abuse. Now the story for another day. So we, we just start thinking about, we start fantasizing. How am I going to shwack myself? How would I do it? What's the, what's the least, you know, what's the least violent way? Who am I going to make my last Facebook post to? Who's going to show up at my funeral? Who do I want to tell, fuck you, before I schwack myself? You know, what do I want to write in my letter? Maybe we'll even type out a letter. Maybe we'll go ahead and look and see if our insurance covers suicide. And we tell ourselves, brother, we're like, oh, I'm just thinking about it. Just thinking about it. And what I need you to hear with love love, because this sucks, is this. When we are thinking about suicide and we're using suicide as a coping mechanism, we're, a lot, we're on a knife's edge. We're on a knife's edge and we're a lot closer than what we think. And, and I'll tell you why. So every single one of us is going to have an experience where our situation overwhelms our skills. And we call that life. It just... It is what it is. And when we're drinking, when we're drugging, especially, and we, we get to a point where maybe 
our buddy commits suicide. We see all those fucking Facebook posts on Memorial Day, whatever the fuck. All of a sudden, our brain will snap. Hey, I know it's a really good idea. And it happens like that. And that's what I need. It's what I need to express. It's what I would want everyone to know. If there's one thing I would tell you, it's that suicide happens fucking fast. Yeah, like there's only like 10 minutes between like having it and doing it. And like, that's why uh, it's so critical even just to interrupt it and like to delay it because you make it take 30, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. The data support that data are very clear that, yeah, giving it more time, calling the crisis line, talking to a buddy, whatever. But this happens fast. I, I had a job um, before before this PCS where I moved, where I responded a lot to, um, we had a murder-suicide problem. So I would respond to units where there was a murder-suicide or where there was a suicide. And that's, unfortunately, and we were talking before the show, you know, it's probably not anyone listening to this right now who hasn't lost more buddies to suicide than they have to combat. It's just, it is what it's it is. A common, I mean, the hardest part about this podcast is I have Google alerts set up for these types of things. And I read these articles and hearing that there's three kids being left behind. And since the war is winding down, it doesn't happen as much. But every time someone would die overseas through combat, I would always look them up and I would always memorialize them on the podcast. And I can't do that with suicide because there's just so many and I don't actually see them all. But man, I remember in Starbucks just bawling my eyes out because emotionally, like the, the toll, I I probably am morally like scarred from it as well. From just reading these stories and realizing like, man, and the part that I've learned when I've interviewed a couple of military spouses that have lost their husbands to suicide is and this is the part that I always tell dads, you don't you think you're stopping the pain. Like this is the solution to prevent the burden to your family. But all you do is pass it on and scar them in a way that's deeper than yours. It's not even their pain. They don't understand it. And the other question I've learned doing this podcast with dads is the kids are haunted with this question. Why didn't my dad love me enough to stay? And they never get the answer. And then they think they're not worthy enough because my dad just took his own life. I must have been pretty bad. And I would encourage anybody listening to this right now to go back and listen to that podcast that you did with that military spouse. That was, um, I was not okay. It was, Oh, you listened to that one? Fuck yeah. Oh yeah. That was, that was, I, I learned a hard lesson. Don't do hard episodes. This one's pretty okay. But that one, I had a hard time going to bed. I recorded it about eight o'clock at night and I had an emotional toll that I was like, I should have did that during the day. Brother, that was powerful though. It was powerful, and I really, um, I really honor your effort to be true and to be authentic. That was it was awesome, and you know, a stat I'll lie down for you is that when someone commits suicide, a parent commits suicide, their children are six times more likely to commit suicide. I say that again for the folks in the back: your children are six times more likely to commit suicide themselves. So. You know, I, I often encourage my my the folks with whom I work to say, you know, imagine feeling six times as shitty as you do right now. And do you really want to pass that on? No, fuck no. You you love your kids. And the thing that I've learned in talking with both folks who tried to commit suicide and they didn't. So I'll start with them. So if you try to commit suicide and for whatever reason it doesn't work, here's what usually happens. You go to jail 
And that's not because you're a bad person. It's just because it is highly likely that the first people are going to respond is the PD. And um, their job is to get you safe. You will end up in a cell by yourself on suicide watch. You're going to end up in something called a turtle suit, um, which is a one piece smock that is stitched together. And it looks like um, it looks like the old Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, but there's no strings on it. So you can't take it. You can't choke on it. You can't kill yourself with it. And um, and you end up in jail on suicide watch. And then you get to talk to someone like me. And the first thing that I hear, if I've heard, brother, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times. It's Virginia. It happened so fast. It happened so fast before I knew it. Before I knew it, the bottle of pills were gone. Before I knew it, my kid walked in on me and I was tying a noose. Before I knew it, the SWAT team showed up and I saw the little dots on my chest. Before I knew it, my spouse walked in on me and the gun was in my mouth. This goes fast. This goes fast, fast, fast. Before I knew it. And I, I want to say again, we don't know our judgment is impaired when our judgment is impaired. When we're suicidal, we are literally not in our right mind. And that's not to shame anyone who's been suicidal. Fuck, I've been suicidal. If that hurts your feelings, fuck you. Okay. Literally not in my right mind. Really and with I anything, I always tell everybody that I talk to, whether it be coach or whatever, no matter what you always have to remember to where whoever you're approaching to them, this is the most rational thought they've ever had. It doesn't matter whether it's pure lunacy. It is the most rational thought that they've ever had. Like, it, the, this is how the world works. This is exactly what needs to happen. And it's just as straight as two plus two. Like, that's the, as perfect as they, they see it. And for us, as rational, like, it's the, it, that's also where the, the judgment kind of almost shames it more is you say, well, that's a stupid thought. That's irrational. Like, why would you fucking think like that? Well, for him, like, he thought that that was as rational as it could be. And so that almost just kind of suppresses it even more. Like, man, I really must be this fucking monster. Legit. You do a really good job in your in your podcast. I, I listened to one of your podcasts about suicide. And I really like that you, that you normalized that and you talked a lot about that. Because, yeah, you know, we joined the service. They call it the fucking service for a reason. You know, so we're telling ourselves that, you know, my family would be better off without me. I remember thinking to myself, my husband's going to have a wife who's, who needs to be hospitalized. What kind of, I, I want my husband to be able to have a, a normal wife who maybe wants kids or some shit. I hate kids. I don't, I don't do kids, but you know, it maybe, you know, I, and I, that's what I told myself, you know, that I'm doing it for him. And so you're right. And and PTSD is unbelievably logical. The number one thing that I would hear from the people left behind. So I'm talking family members, uh, battle buddies, chain of command. When I when I would go is, man, you know what? You know, I, I knew Ben was doing, you know, I knew Ben was, was struggling, but it really seemed like he was doing better. You know, I saw him around recently. He seemed like he was Yeah, it's usually that always better. that, like, it's like when people get ready to die from cancer. They always get, like, a two-day last minute poof of energy before it actually ends up taking their life. Legit. A big reason for that, though, is because when we're, when we're using suicide as coping mechanism, on the outside, we look like we're doing better. We really do. 
Yeah, it's you know, really a universal lie that can come to it can really argue anything rationally like that. It's uh, it really is a universal lie that fits almost every thing that you could ask you. Like, does it pass that test? Yeah. Does it pass this test? Yeah. Wow. This is a really good idea. Yeah. It's like in the you, you wouldn't know this, but the movie uh, Inside Out is very much based on the psychological brain of the little characters inside this girl's head. I've and heard insert, about it. I haven't seen yeah, it. They put a light bulb in the panel to run away. And once it's in, they can't get the light bulb out. And it takes sadness in order to touch the light bulb for her to feel sad for the first time to get that light bulb out. But it's that idea. Once it's in, it's it just like, that. man, this is how it works. Yeah. All the other emotions can't access it except sadness. Yeah. Yeah. When we're, you know, with moral injury, um, we see a lot more, you know, we see a lot more self-harm. We see, so I'm talking about what, what we call non-suicidal self-injury. So cutting, scraping, picking. Um, we see a lot more poor self-care. We, we see decreased empathy, a lot of self-loathing. We see a lot more self-condemning thoughts, um, a lot more internal suffering. And when it comes to moral injury, you know, kind of unlike PTSD, these are the things that we can't talk about. So, you know, like, for example, in my book, I talk a lot about war crimes. And um, it's really important that if we first, the first thing I would want people to know is if they've experienced uh, something horrific, whether they, you know, unfortunately, something that comes up a lot in my practice is the idea of the dancing boys in Afghanistan. Okay. And, and you're a dad. So you get this, you know, we're, we're told not to interfere because, you know, while these warlords are raping children and they're screaming for their fathers and we hear them on our base because well, it's part of their culture and we just need to let that ride. The fuck what? Yeah. That doesn't like, that just doesn't compute for, and it goes again, what you're talking that moral code, that code of the soul that especially like, I mean, a lot of the people that serve the country come from a, like me, I was in Southern Wisconsin, grew up on a farm like that. Just uh, like I was a very innocent kid going into that. I never went to Afghanistan or Iraq, but man, if I did, I can only imagine how much that would have just conflicted with. I had a very kind of just plain view of the world and a very safe view of the world. Like I was the first one in my family to have a passport and then just see different things like it. uh that just changes you. And like what you've talked about through this interview, it, it adds an insight and a view and it, it, it creates like what probably what you also probably speak to is this rational model that you create of how you see the world that when you experience things that don't fit into that, it's, it's like this virus trying to knock on the door and try to get in. You don't, you want to try to block it out, but you can't. And it just eventually kind of works its way in. And then it just kind of just takes it over. And it's, uh, that how that how you rationalize to see the world before and after that is probably something that creates that dichotomy that you have to work through. I want to go into a different area so that because one of the parts that you talked about in the beginning, and I want to go back there and hit because it really seemed interesting to me, and I want to make sure I can bring some value to it. You talk about the solution is something from the inside out. And so part of what I've really learned is actually this feeling of home is actually something that all men have been looking for, but they've been looking for in buildings, careers, and status, and uniforms, and ribbons, but it's actually a feeling that they've been looking for their entire life, but it has to come from the inside. And I'm actually thinking there's probably a little bit of what you have to do in order to bring them home is understanding that this feeling they're looking for is actually something that comes from the inside out. So I'm wondering, within your process to 
move through PTSD and actually like get beyond it, what actually is that component that comes from within that is something that maybe most people aren't even thinking to utilize as a superpower to get through this? That's, that's a deep question. You've been writing deep answers, so I'm ready. I'm, I'm positive. I have full oh. confidence that you have something already locked, loaded, and ready in your barrel to fire on this question and answer. Yeah, I hope so. I hope I, I hope I don't fuck that one up because it's a great <laughs> question. I think it's important not just to process trauma, but also to process its meaning. What does it mean? Um, you know, who does this make me? A and you know, fortunately, we do have evidence-based treatments. And when I say something's an evidence-based treatment, I want to kind of put that into context. You're using the purple book with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm purple book that one. Yeah, thanks, bro. <laughs> so an evidence-based treatment, you know, that, so we think about the vaccine is probably the most, you know, salient example that's coming up right now. So when we test a vaccine or we test uh, a new medicine, what will happen is the new medicine, it'll go through these double-blind studies um, it'll go through these clinical trials and we take a look at it and we, and we, um, we test it over a very long period of time, what we call a longitudinal study. So it's, these studies will go on decades. And the reason is because we want to make sure that the drug works. We want to make sure the vaccine works before we, you know, give it to everybody. And, and we want to make sure that there are no side effects, that it actually works, that it, it, it does what it's supposed to do and it works for the long haul. And it, and we're not just, you know, uh, you know, our ears aren't going to fall off or our teeth aren't going to fall out or whatever the fuck, you know, later on down the line. And so these double blind studies are really important. And so what happens in therapy when we're talking about seeing a therapist is we actually um, have these exact same double blind studies, these longitudinal studies um, for decades with PTSD, with moral injury. So we are testing, then they're called evidence-based treatments, meaning that they have been, they've been, you know, someone came up with it, they tested it, they wrote it down, uh, they wanted to make sure that it could be repeated. Uh, groups of scientists, you know, thousands of service members, thousands of service members, um, you know, go through this and we want to make sure that it works and it works for the long haul. And for something to be evidence-based, it's not a small deal. That means, I mean, just take the Pareto rule, 80-20. This no shit works 80% of the time, 80% of the time. So here's the thing with an evidence-based treatment. If I had an 80% chance of winning the lottery, I'd fucking play. I'd also play if I had a 20% chance to win in the lottery. So let's get real there. So when it comes to evidence-based treatments, we got three of them that are approved by the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs. So we have prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, and something called EMDR. So echo mic delta Romeo. So eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, big words. But here's the deal with that. They work for PTSD, they work most of the time. So let's say you go in and you try course of action one and it doesn't work. You're an outlier, you're a 20 percenter. Not a big fucking deal because 20% is a huge number. Go to COA 2, go to COA 3. If we're trying three different evidence-based treatments and it's not bringing your symptoms down with clinical significance, like you're not reclaiming your life in eight to 10 sessions, because that's all these fucking take. So we, we work in a managed care system. So if it's not eight to 10, 
I can't get lost, right? Because insurance won't pay for it. Then, you know, you could have what we call treatment resistant PTSD, which we have a whole other list of EBTs, evidence-based treatments for, or you don't have PTSD. You might have moral injury. You might have just bad depression or panic disorder, anything else. But I think it's important, and especially with the no, with the no shit facts, I think it's important to know what the evidence-based treatments are so we can ask for them by name. So let's say, let's say you got a fucking tumor, bro. You go to your PCM, you're going to want, you're going to want a referral to an oncologist. If you got a weird rash, depending on where it is, you're going to want to go see a dermatologist. You want to go to a specialist. And it's the same thing with PTSD. We, you know, people are super niche when it comes to therapists. For example, I do PTSD and moral injury. That's really all I do well. If I'm being for real and honest, I can do a bunch of other shit and I can half-ass it. And I'm, I mean, my knowledge is PowerPoint deep. The best I'm going to do if you have an eating disorder, super common with PTSD, especially for men, one of the most common co-occurring disorders, eating disorders, binge eating disorder, anorexia, bulimia, is that I can, I can get you in the right direction, but I'm not your guy. But if you got PTSD, go, go to a PTSD specialist, ask for the evidence-based treatment by name. Otherwise, you're going to be fucking around talking about your mommy and attachment issues, and you're not going, don't fuck around with this. If you've got cancer, stop going to your fucking PCM. Go get a fucking biopsy. Get that shit, clean it out. Same thing with PTSD. Same thing with moral injury. We have adaptive disclosure. And, and that's why, so for your, for your listeners, I, I would encourage them, you know, definitely go to thesoldiersguide.com. I put the first two chapters of my book in there because if there's, yeah, for free, because I want folks to be able to recognize their symptoms because when you can recognize your symptom, you can get an evidence-based treatment. Stop fucking around. It is important to get an evidence-based treatment for your PTSD. Get something that works. Why are you going to sit around and talk and and talk about? And I'm not. I sound like an asshole, probably, but I am sort of an asshole. But you know, you're going to be talking about your feelings, or you know, talking about you know your family of origin issues. And if you've got those, great. Go work on those after you've worked on your PTSD. But if you need to know shit, reclaim your life because your PTSD is keeping you from being a father. Your PTSD is keeping you from being a husband. It's keeping you from getting a job. It's keeping you from sleeping at night. You're suicidal all the time. Get the help that you deserve. Don't fuck around. Go, no shit, reclaim your life and ask by name for that evidence-based treatment. And, and I'm, I realize I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to beat a drum here. It, there's, nothing, there's nothing harder in my line of work than seeing a fucking one of my PTSD vet brothers, like a Vietnam vet or sisters, you know, we've got incredible women who served in that conflict. They come and they get their treat. They've been, maybe they've been in treatment in and out of treatment their whole lives. And then they do an evidence-based treatment. And this, this happened just last month with a client I had. So this is, this hits me in the feels. 
guy's fucking 80, man. And for the first time, the first time in his life, he is, he is seeing himself the way other people see him and not for the monster he believed he was. And he's already been through three wives. His kids won't talk to him. You know, it, it's like that train left the station. And he's, you know, he chronic suicidality, what we call chronic PTSD. We have evidence-based treatment for chronic PTSD. Chronic PTSD, compound PTSD, does, it, that's not a death sentence. But that is a rumor out there that is so fucking wrong. And where I hear that rumor, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little pissed off. But I hear that rumor from other so-called fucking experts on PTSD, from other clinicians that, oh, well, if you have PTSD, you're just going to have it for the rest of your life. No shit, there I was. True story. I, I'm in an inpatient environment. And I worked on a team. Sorry for the war story, but I worked on a team that was, um, that was, you know, really worked with kind of these hard to crack cases, what we call a multidisciplinary team. So we all get together and we're like, how do we unfuck? Like them? the house for, for clinicians. Yeah, but we're not really entertaining and probably not that smart. <laughs> or um, probably that rude. I don't know. We're pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> we're, pretty, we're a pretty salty fucking bunch. But, um, but, you know, we, we all come together and, um, had this, had this client, I'll never forget her my whole life. Um, Navy, um, Navy, ex extreme trauma, military sexual trauma survivor, um, incredibly intelligent, um, uh, being med boarded out of the military against her will. And, uh, she had gone through, um, she'd gone through three, the three evidence-based treatments that, that most places offer for PTSD. And she was an outlier. She was an outlier, but we didn't determine that she, she had something really, you know, I was like, okay, there's something not right here. There's something off. And so I did a clinical interview with her and I said, and I gave her, I asked her what I call the big two. So there are two big questions that we have to be able to answer that only we can answer for ourselves. We can't answer from anyone else. And that's, do you think, do you believe change is possible? Do you believe it's possible that you could reduce your PTSD symptoms and be the best dad that you can be? Do you believe it's possible that you could reduce your PTSD symptoms and ask a dad on the playground for his number? Not asking you if you can do it or you're going to go out and do it today. I'm just asking if it's possible. And most people are like, oh, yeah, Virginia, you know. I could wake up tomorrow. The sky could be green and the grass could be blue. Anything could be possible. I'm like, all right, fuck you. you got it. Then the second, second question is, do you believe it's possible? Are you willing to do it? You know, do you want to get better? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? So I asked those questions and I said clinical interview with this woman because she worked harder than her peers. She was smarter than her peers. And I was like, girl, real talk. Do you believe it's possible that you could reduce your symptoms and get to a point where you can function and stay in the military? And dead ass, she looked right at me. She said, well, no, I know that's not possible. I said, the fuck what? Tell me more. Tell me more. That's, 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 that's therapist code for it. The fuck what? That's tell me more. She says, well, my psychiatrist on base, who was active duty military, by the way, my psychiatrist on base told me that you know, I'll be able to reduce my symptoms and I might start feeling better for a while. But in the end, 
PTSD, I'm just going to end up killing myself because there's no cure for PTSD. That's absolutely. That's what the therapist told her. No shit, bro. I I had the first time I went to seek help. I had a therapist, no shit, tell me that he couldn't help me because I was being untruthful because women aren't in combat. The fuck what? And that, that didn't end well. That's another war story for another day. But yeah, the therapist told her that. You know, you have resonated so much there in a couple different ways. And one story that I haven't told in a while, I don't know if I've ever told it, is way back when I still considered I sucked at doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. It was November of 2019. I was just wrapping up a year. I had started experimenting with a lot of lucid drugs, but not really a drugs, but just doing solo podcast episodes to see what they would do. And I found out I liked them. And it was like my second one. And I didn't think anything of it. And I get this email from the universe. I never rarely get like long emails from the podcast. And this Vietnam veteran listened to this episode, never heard of him, ever even heard him since, never even knew who he was. He's like five paragraphs writing. If I would have had this podcast 30 years ago, I would have been a better dad. And I felt like that was the like the my level one advice on that episode that he referenced. And I was like, winning. fuck. Yeah. 30 years gone. Like, and all he needed but really probably was just permission to be dad. Like that was really what he was holding on to that he couldn't give himself to. And the other part that really reminded me is when I'm working or getting ready to close a coaching call and when I'm getting ready to get someone in my program. I've actually kind of had this analogy and I'm actually a bookie because there's two choices. When someone says yes to accepting coaching, you're actually saying, I believe that I can be who you just said I could be. And if you're saying no, it's actually you're calling bullshit and you don't believe you're capable of doing any of the stuff that you think I got it 100% wrong and you may dress it up with money issues, but it's 100% either yes is yes, I do believe I can be who I just said you said I could be or no, you're not. And it goes right to your questions of you can't create a change that doesn't come from this is probably what we were leading in the big question in the beginning, maybe 10 minutes ago, is that feeling on the inside that believe like to me, that is a huge word that I've had to reuse. And like my 2020 word was believe. And I picked that word before even 2020 started. And man, did that word get tested and tested and the part, the root where that word came into my mind was I needed to believe that I was capable of doing everything I needed. I just needed to believe that I had the resources already inside. It wasn't more one more book. It wasn't one more podcast. It wasn't one more anything. The only thing holding me back was believing I've had everything I've always needed to be everything that I wanted. I just needed to believe that I could do it. You know, when, when you have that self-belief and, and you're armed with facts, you're really unstoppable, you know? And, and I'm thinking back to this client, this woman, she believed all that, but she also believed a lie. After, after I, I picked up, you know, myself off the floor because I <laughs> shat myself. I was like, Jesus, God help us. Um, and I reeducated her on, you know, and I showed her, and she's super analytical, super fucking smart. And she, she's way above my level way above my level. And I gave her all the data and I I gave her articles to read. And in two weeks, she recalibrated herself, rediscovered herself. She stayed in the military. She stayed in the military. Her life has, has not been the same ever since because she had that belief in herself, but then she also had the no shit facts. 
And because she had those two things, she was really able to reclaim her life. And, you know, it, and it didn't take much. Like once you reorientate that energy, I mean, th- there's so many things like, cause the first part I usually go, I usually always check on different like fatherhood issues. Cause there's just so many limiting beliefs with dads that, that they live under the umbrella of how their father was. Mm-hmm. And I'll go somewhere. I was, I was just chatting with this guy. I never even got to talk to him on the phone and he was telling me a story and he was, I was like, do you ever feel like a 10 year old boy waiting to be led by his father and went silence and like maybe two minutes he replied, fuck. And like that wakening moment, he realized what he was living and waiting for. And like, once you do that type of stuff, wake and get that a new thought, new belief and give them the idea like, Oh, I don't have to believe that anymore. Like it's almost, it, I almost don't always believe the change that the, these clients are going through because it's so quick. Once you reorientate the lo- direction, the energy, give them some new truths to believe that aren't the old ones. I mean, it like people will probably, this is something you probably encounter. Like they come into you and they probably think they're subscribing for like a six month, like intensive. And then you were like, no, it's fucking time for that. 10 times. And we can, we can get this fucking thing taken care of. And it's it, even that probably holds people back from getting it because they think it's this big long journey because they've been told maybe it's a lifelong journey that you learn to live with it's like a, a child that has moved out of your head and overall it's eight to ten times and i do want to ask one question because mm-hmm. it's been a little bit too heavy so i want to lighten it up what evidence-based fucking treatment said motrin and water cures everything because in my adult life I have never been subscribed Motrin and water, but somewhere in the military hierarchy, they've done some probably evidence-based treatment that said Motrin and water solves everything. But yet, I, I, I can't believe that actually evidence-based treatment says Motrin and water solves everything. Do you have any evidence just to like help enlighten me why Motrin and water has this like fucking paradigm that it fixes everything but doesn't do anything? I think it's only eight hundred milligram Motrin. Okay. Water. I mean, so we have to horse be more, pill size stuff. Yeah, we have to be super Pacific. Otherwise, <laughs> we're being Atlantic. So, it, it, you know, yeah, it's only 800 milligrams and, uh, and you know, Luke cold water. But it's yeah. even like that bullshit about Motrin and water that almost makes people believe that going to sickbay doesn't do anything. Like, it's that in itself is an oxymoron and a good joke, but it creates a disbelief that what medicine does in the military isn't something that can heal that what is wrong with you is something always on the inside and they're just going to give you motion and water to go back to work i love this topic and um i want to talk about drugs for a minute would that be all right yeah because if i had a nickel for every time someone's like hey just give me a drug for my ptsd oh my god i'd have five or six bucks i'd be loaded that'd be awesome so there is no drug treatment for ptsd We do have drug treatments to reduce nightmares. We have drug treatments for anxiety, for depression, but not for PTSD. It's one of those things that we have to process. And if we have moral injury, we have to process the trauma and its meaning. Um, But there, you know, early on, especially in the VA uh, system, which I do not represent in any way in this podcast, calm the fuck down. Um, It's... You know, there, there were a lot of folks who got really hooked to opioids and who got hooked to all sorts of drugs um, because it helped them to feel better. And, you know, that's a managed care system. We'll go, you know, we'll, if you cut, you know, it's a numbers game. A lot of managed care is just numbers. If you go to sick bay and you get a drug and then you don't come back, 
Well, that obviously means that whatever you went for was cured by what we gave you. It doesn't mean that, oh, shit, we've, we've, we've created an opioid addiction. You know, there, there might not be, you know, any, any looking further into that. But, you know, I, I do want to be super clear that there is no medication solution for PTSD. If there were, that would be awesome. And, and because that's why a lot of us turn to drugs and alcohol, you know, to be able to feel something. If, if my solution were a swallow away, why the fuck would I do eight to 10 sessions of talking to, to someone? Yeah. When I don't really want to. You know what you reminded yeah. me of? So you've done enough talking about boys. I'm going to talk about girls for a second. Yeah, I heard a statistic, maybe like really early in my journey, there was a, a woman psychiatrist on a dad's podcast, and they were talking about how important it was for the menstrual cycle for women. And she was talking about how most women, one in four women in America, are on antidepressants, which then suppress the rise and fall of their emotions tied to the menstrual cycle. And how like we like most like psychiatrists don't ask if you're having a sleep problem. Well, what are you eating? Like it's always this idea of a pill. It's not like oh maybe your diet, maybe your sleep pattern, maybe your work. Like maybe you're just naturally stressed out. Maybe you're stuck at adulting, and we just go to these defaults of pills. And for women, I believe it's creating this huge even depression with these. Like you're meant to have bad days. You need these cycles of to regulate your body but we don't have these healthy conversations to challenge the status quo. Like if you go to your doctor, your primary care right now and ask them about how to understand your nutrition, you're probably going to get a very grade level one answer. Like they're not even trained in healthy nutrition, which is part of the regular body. They're trained in what the prescription and the pharmaceutical companies want you to do, which then just creates this whole dichotomy that creates a problem harder. So I really loved how clear you brought the idea of evidence-based treatment that there are already solutions. Go in there with the language that you need and understand that it can be fixed. It's not with the pill. It's something that comes from the inside out. You just have to have the language to articulate it. Yeah. that, that I love. Amen, brother. I'm not an expert on most things and, and especially on, on menstrual cycles or, you know, you're more of an expert than I am being a woman. So <laughs> you got that going for you. Yeah, maybe. Got that going for me. So, well, definitely not, not maybe in that case, but um, yeah, I think it, I think a big part of, of treatment um, is that self-advocacy piece. I think it's very, it's vital for us to know more about our PTSD, about our symptoms, about the criteria. We have to know more about it than our chain of command, than our doctor, than our therapist. We need to we need to know that. We need to have an answer. We need to know what that is. If you're going in for a CMP exam, uh, what do you fucking call that? Compensation and pension for the VA. Know your symptoms. Look that shit up. Don't go in blind. Be prepared. Know your symptoms. Know what that is. And go in and ask for evidence-based treatment by name. It is so incredibly important to be able to advocate for yourself, to have the verbiage. You know, a lot of times, and especially clients of color, you know, we've got a lot of data to support this, unfortunately. And clients of color, you know, person of color get really shitty treatment. And so a, a big part of, you know, talking about PTSD, talking about mental health is I want you to sound smart as fuck. If you're a military veteran, you passed an ASVAB. You know, you know what the fuck's up. 
But unfortunately, there are a lot of folks who won't take us seriously if you don't have an MD after your name, if you're not called Dr. Umpty Chuck. You well, know, if you had a shitty leadership experience and you were just depressed and told you were a shitbag the entire time, like that in itself will create this. Well, who the fuck am I to Google what I could know? Because my entire military existence, I was told that I was just a bag of shit and I wasn't going to do anything. That in itself cancels out the belief that I'm worthy of actually going and getting treated. So you're singing my song, brother. Yeah, like uh, one of my one of my earlier like breadcrumbs to what I do now was I was platoon sergeant for three months, and one of the things I really loved was taking those Marines out of the other NCOs that labeled ship eggs and pulling the Marine out of them that they couldn't see themselves, and that's what kind of gave me that first learning of leadership was taking the people that other people couldn't that just fucking gave up on, and like you're a fucking Marine, I can help you understand how you are a Marine. And like, that was how essentially I started putting together. I was like, I really liked that. And that's essentially what leadership is. You help reflect back some of the best parts, what they can't see. And that's why even friends, like friends is a huge component of my life. My, my whole spiel here on the podcast, because when you suck at seeing your value in the mirror, when you look in the mirror and you just see this weak loser, your friend only sees what he can see, and it's usually positive. And this is why this is why I exist. This podcast exists is because I said hello to a dad at the park, repeated that process, and then they kept telling me like Ben, the way you put words together is not like anything I've heard before. I just felt something I've never felt before. I've told my story about friends to a bunch of dads, and a dad came up to me at the end crying before he said hello because I gifted him the words to put emotions together that he hadn't felt like. Those are the moments where I started to put together what I was supposed to be doing with my life. It's powerful. That is absolutely powerful. I, I had the chance to read your book too, uh, which I would recommend to, to anyone watching your podcast. And, you know, it's short, sweet, and to the point, but it, it's very, it's very here, here are the tools you need. Here are the tools. You could, you know, you could subtitle it, you know, how to know shit, get your life together and make friends. And yeah. see I wrote that book so early on because it was an experiment to, to do it. And if anybody's looking, it's on Amazon. If you Google, it's the five authentic steps to a better life. And Man, it's cheap. Buy it. It's like yeah. three bucks. It's awesome. And I, I read back and like there are so many breadcrumbs to what I understand now on a deeper level. And I was right there on the tip of it. I just needed to go deeper in the well to understand it. So it's really cool going back and rereading that book because I've read it a couple times recently. And I'm like... I was right there on top of it. I just didn't have the art language to articulate it in a deeper way. And I mean, now I've got it so punchy. Sometimes I can, I can shorten some of those sections in that book down to like three or four sentences, but like it is that path back to who you are, because like what this, anybody listening to this podcast for a long time, this podcast exists because I decided to create a podcast that I needed five years ago. So everything that I talk about is my avatar of me. And I know exactly what I needed five years ago. So that's what I always, I would have loved to have this type of interview in my ears on the way to work because it would have fucking woke me up to like, you're kind of just kind of neutral and dead. And I was telling you before I recorded, I admitted to the podcast that I'm a little too stuffy. I take myself too seriously. I hope this podcast episode has been a great example of me not being serious, not being stuffy and being very fluid and dynamic and me and letting it come into the surface but I needed permission from that. And I kind of just got my, in my own way from that. And it's, it happens and it's perfectly okay. I, I love that you're paying it forward. And, you know, I, I wrote in the forward to my book that if I had had this, if I had had this exact book 
if if I had had this, you know, back in fucking 2008, it would have saved me years of bullshit. It would have saved me years of bullshit. And, you know, just like with your podcast, you're filling a gap. You know, it is, it is such a privilege for me at least. And I know it is for you too. It is, it is a privilege to pay this forward and to give, give soldiers, give Marines, give, give military service members, veterans, to give them permission to advocate for themselves, to give them the words they need to sound smart as fuck so that they can get the help they need to know what an evidence-based treatment is, how to ask for it fucking by name so that you can take the next two months and reclaim your fucking life and your family and your job. Even if the only thing you remember from this episode is evidence-based PTSD treatment, even if you have an idiot doctor in front of you, they can Google that. And I'm sure it'll very quickly come up with those three or four things that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And like, even those things will give them exactly where to look. And like, it's, it's all right there. And something you kind of talked about in your whole message in your book, it kind of paints this. To me, I feel like the graduation moment when you're on the other side of PTSD is you figured out how to make your mess your message. When you've been able to take the shit of what you went through, put it to the world with an unemotional attachment of fuck it, whatever happens, happens. Then you're at this point where, yes, it happened, it fucked up, whatever, it's in the past. But now I can go back and help people that just started on step one. That is when you really understand, like, this doesn't have any fucking power over me anymore, and I'm ready to fucking go wherever life goes. Yeah, it's that, that soldier in a hole analogy. Yes. So you Jump in there. I, like, I, I've been here. I, I know how to get out. I know how to get out. And, you know, before, before we started recording, you were talking about hate mail and haters. And, um, and I get a ton of hate. I get a ton of hate. Bring it. Bring it. Drink your hater aid, bitches. I got it. Um, because a lot of people take exception to somebody with a vagina who says the F word. Um, a lot of people take exception to, to me, to my book, to fuck it, to everything, to everything that, who do you think you are? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm someone who's trying and I'm not going to stop anybody from writing their own book and being the best version of them. You do you. You do you. The most important part in coaching, because this always comes up where people like I was this internalized all this feedback, especially if you're a nice guy. And I'm sure if in therapy, you've learned about the nice guy problem within men. Like they just spent their entire life being a nice guy. When you've spent your entire life being a nice guy, looking for other people's approval, everything they say is internalized. And the way through what you just said that I always tell men about is what they said about you. 120% says more about them than it will ever say about you. And the most important part also within this idea that I also talk about is you're doing something that proves their fucking world wrong and it scares the shit out of them that they might have fucking got it wrong and they're trying to convince you to pull you back. I don't know if you've ever heard the uh, crab is in a bucket analogy where a crab running out of a trying to crawl out of a bucket, the other ones will pull it back down. Almost every time someone comes in your life and hates on you, it's because you're doing something that fucks with their view of the world that they've believed in, whether 50 or 60 years old, and it really bothers them. And they're trying to get you to convince to go back and drink that Kool-Aid. And you have to remember, it's about their view, not yours. And you're a free human being to do whatever the fuck you need to do. Yeah, Freud, uh, Freud called that projection. And I love what, you know, the idea that just like a movie projector, we take how we feel about ourselves and we project it on others. You'll see like the Rorschach here in back of me. You know, the world is like a big Rorschach test 
we, you know, Freud said, um, you know, we think we're looking out a window, but we're really looking in a mirror. And um, that's so true. And, you know, and I realized that when talking about PTSD and talking about my background that, you know, I, you know, I, I engender a lot of hate. I get that. I get that. I, I, I wrote this article for the Naval War College. This is back in like fucking like 2013 or so. And, um, and the editor, um, <laughs> the editor said, I've never gotten so much hate mail about an article before that we published in the, in the Naval War College review. And I was like, yeah, like, welcome to so my people world. read it. Congratulations. Well, you know, yeah. Well, people, yeah, hardly anyone reads it. I mean, it is. They proved that people were out there reading it. There's someone's reading it and someone's hating it and hating on me, but um, yeah, you know, and there's a lot in my book, you know, writing a book and having a podcast and especially because your, your podcast is so centered Ben on authenticity. And when I was writing this, there's so much fear that I had. I said, you know, what, what's going to happen if my clients, for example, find out that I was once suicidal or I had PTSD or that I'm not the brilliant, you know, professor they think I am. Um, and, and, you know, it was choosing to be, you know, what are people going to think if, if, I'm, if I bring my whole truth to the table? And, um, you know, that's kind of the beauty of age. But I also had to kind of weigh out, okay, well, what's more important? You know, my ego here and what people may or may not think. Because what other people think of me is none of my fucking business. Um. Or, or is it, is it, you know, taking a risk and having a message and just putting it out there and laying the chip, let, let that, let yeah, maybe just change in the world. Yeah. But as the Dalai Lama said, you know, you just got to shake it off, shake it off. You know yeah. what also the analogy that I popped in my head that you might also like, I don't know whether you're connected to this or not, but I always talk about the bullshit that's in your shadows is what's really holding you back. And I always like equating it to Superman. No matter what fucking happened to Superman, if he did draw blood, it was the light that healed it. And the part that most people don't understand about scars, scar tissue heals two times stronger than the original skin tissue that was there before the scar. And so if you bring it into the light, it will heal and it will heal stronger. And that's why I think it was so important. No matter fucking what happens to whoever reads it and whoever gets pissed, the healing process that happens when you bring all of the shit into the light and just let it be what it is, that healing process is like the sun hitting Superman, and it, it's where he gets his strength from. It's where all that power comes from, and if you keep a lot of shit in the shadows, you're just wasting RAM in your internal processor and just creating future therapy clients for people after PTSD that still have to unpack why their father hated them. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, because I, I, I traffic in trauma, I mean, I'll never run out of, clients, unfortunately. I'll always have a waiting list a mile long. It's just, it is what it is. It, it, yeah, that stuff in the shadows, you know, recently, uh, you know, for me, I, I'm, you know, I have a sobriety journey and I'm part of a 12-step program and, you know, really, really proud of my sobriety and part of, and, and what that, how fucking unbelievably hard that was. And, um, and it, you know, I realized that it does bring, you know, what, and I'm not going to lie to you when I, when I talk about that with, you know, cause I'm, why the fuck would I lie about that? I got no reason why I talk about that with other treatment professionals or if it comes up and it's not something I bring up, I mean, it's fucking anonymous for a reason. I mean, get a, get a grip, but um, you know, sometimes it will come up and people will be like, 
the fuck what you and um you know i you know that idea of judgment you know a lot of us and, and i and i'm not immune to this i'm so not immune to this i was just talking with uh with someone about this this morning you know when when i get that judgment when i get that you know really that judgment i have to think back i have to kind of center myself and really you know you know, focus on that for me, that center journey and like, and my relationship, my higher power and say, you know, am I really, am I really a slave to this belief system? Am, am I buying into, you know, because someone is, someone who judges us is actively trying to shame us, actively trying to make us feel that there is something fundamentally wrong with us. And I've done a lot of bad shit. I, there, I have a lot that I can be guilty about, but you know yeah, what? I'd be I, grateful for because without all that shit, you wouldn't be the superhero you are today, lifting up veterans through their shit. Like that's the power of the mess to the message. Because once you realize, and even my own story, like I, I talk about it openly. I use it as a teaching tool. Like without that, you're you're just this guy trying to hold the flashlight and randomly point in places. But when you fucking been there your ability to go someplace quick, like almost is like, that is what is your superpower because you, that's what that they value you because, wow, you knew exactly where that ID was and exactly where to look and what it would look like. Wow. How'd you fucking do that? Well, I was fucking there. I did it two years ago and I disarmed it. And so now I can help you disarm it. Like to me, that's the magic of that shit when you let it go, because it's creates the juice that allows you to do fucking big things. I almost wish I had more adversity in my life early on. Like, if you think of even Oprah, Oprah had like fucking horrible upbringing, and to think how fucking her how she climbed, she high or how high she climbed, or Tony Robbins, like the the more adversity early in life, and the earlier you convert your shit to your message. I mean, the fucking the sky's the limit of where you can go if you can fully accept and believe you can move beyond it and into where you need to go. Yeah, and I mean, it's not an easy journey, but it's worth it. Oh, yes, definitely. It's not easy, but man, it's the, I always like the stoic idea of it. It's the obstacle is a way, and it's not about avoiding the obstacles, it's about figuring out what is this teaching you. And to wrap up that final thought, there was one that kind of teaching you that it kind of almost caught me off guard when we were doing the interview. And it was with Bobby Dove last November, and he lost an arm and a leg in Afghanistan to an IED, and he described it as the best day of his life. Because I was like, so like, what was it about this day? And I asked him the question, like, what was the universe trying to teach you leading up to this moment that only through this devastating thing did you finally learn? And through some questions, we figured out to learn to ask for help and to learn to love himself. Because his dad died of cancer when he was 12, and he was stuck at 12 trying to grow up but never could figure out how. Losing his arm and his leg really opened him up to loving himself for who he is in a limited way. And then also having the courage and accept from help from other people. And that without that moment, he wouldn't have had that shift. Now he's a dad, he's got two kids, and he's as happy as he's ever been. But it was it took that huge shift. And it's like when those when you hear those, I'm sure you've heard them as well. Like they describe those kind of devastating days as this is the best day of my life. You know, I I do hear a lot of stories like that and I, and I always approach them with caution and I'll tell you why. I think it's awesome that he had that experience and what the fuck, what do I know? But I, I, I'm leery of those stories because I think it, in some cases, it creates an unreal expectation 
for somebody who's really struggling to, you know, like if I can't overcome this and say that, you know, the time my buddy got killed in combat, that it was the best life. You can't get to that conclusion. Like it creates a trap entrapment into it. Kind of the question. It can. I, I hear it a lot with, um, with assault survivors, whether it's MST or childhood sexual assault or rape or incest, it's, you know, I hear that, you know, that very, you know, there's, there's always somebody who's like, you know, well, I forgave my attacker and it was the, it was the right thing to do. Yaddy, yaddy bullshit. And not that it's their yaddy, yaddy bullshit, but just on and on. And then there are a lot of us who can stand back and say, how, how, yeah, that how, like it's, uh, like, like that's almost a, like this crazy standard that almost unrealistic that if I can't hold myself to it, what am I doing? I have a, uh, I have a, a client that I'm working with right now uh, who comes to mind immediately because she, she compares herself to Elizabeth smart. She, she was that, that young girl who somewhere in like one of those square States in the middle, like Utah or something, maybe, I don't know. Sorry. Anyway. So she got kidnapped as a kid, like an unbelievable story. She got kidnapped. She was put into like some sort of cult, religious cult. And I'm butchering poor Elizabeth Smart's story. Please go Google that shit for yourself. Don't believe my ass. Um, but then she uh, she had tons of like excellent therapy and social support and family who just fucking loved her. And she had this amazing comeback where now she's like a national speaker. Um, and, and she, you know, she's this inspirational speaker. And here my client was like, well, if I can't hit the Elizabeth Smart standard, what the fuck am I doing? I'm like, girl, let, let's talk. Let's talk. You know, she, she had a lot of, she had family, she had support. She had all the, she didn't just wake up and be like, yeah, it's the best day of my life. You know, your, your guy in Afghanistan probably went through a lot of really good therapy. It has really great He was connected with the George Bush Institute, which is where I got connected with them. So he had pretty much the the gold treatment probably through those programs of what they can provide and just get connected. And he was also connected with a house from the Gary uh, Seenness Foundation. I probably, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. He, he had the right people in his in his life to help bring him home. And the the part that within that story that you were just mentioning about climbing and going through all of that shit, like... It's it is hard when you hear those stories and it is hard finding meaning in that and it is hard going through that. And I was just watching this past weekend Chris Norton documentary on Netflix who had a spinal injury in football and in, in high school and essentially he was he, you would you would fucking jump out of your chair in the scene cuz there's he's in the hospital. He's kind of sitting in a chair and the doctor's like and he he actually has he, he thinks he has feeling in his feet. And he tells the doctor, can you take my my socks off? I'd like to see. And he's like, I'm sorry, son. I'm not going to do that. You're never going to have any feeling in your legs below your waist for the rest of your life. And just fucking vacuumed out it like a fucking soul-breathing monster. And that created the moment of like, fuck you. I'm going to prove you wrong. And like the next 10 years of the journey is how learning to walk seven yards. The title of the movie is Seven Yards and how to walk seven yards down the aisle of his wedding and now he's he's still in a wheelchair, but he can move around and he's gone through a lot of physical therapy. They actually he's found this amazing woman in his life. They foster kids now and give them second homes like and he has a similar like I wouldn't take that moment away from me. It was sucked, 
But man, knowing the destination I'm in now, it is how I wanted it to happen. Like it's it's fucking hard when you try to do that from that moment. He talks about that moment. Like when I was sitting in the hospital and that fucking doctor told me I was never gonna walk again. Like I and even the mom was like, God, we just didn't have certainty. And she's at the wedding and like, man, it was I wish I could go back and tell myself in those first few weeks. It's all going to be good. And he also had like, it was a cool, really unique story because his brothers in college were also very supportive. And like, he would have people sleeping with him that would wake up and scratch his leg when he can't do it. And like, he had this amazing support network of love. And it's going back to that story from Sarah. And like, it's, it was, it's really good. I was, I was fucking bawling the entire time. Like I was bawling my eyes out just from the sheer emotion, the feeling of dad, just the journey. Like, oh man, my, my, my tear ducts were flowing pretty good in that movie. Yeah, he had, you know, he had people to support him, you know, and, you know, like you're a coach. People, you know, your listeners can hire you, can can have a phone call with you, can go to your website, can connect with you, you know. So even if we're having a hard time making friends, you can, you can get a coach. You can go to a therapist. You know, we're, you know, therapists, coaches are a vital part of your social support. You know, you don't have to be the homecoming king. Um, you know, just so incredibly important, you know, it's just one, you know, one small step. Yeah. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, one bite at a time. The short answer to my friendship is you're always one conversation away from changing your life. And it's only on the other side of hello. Like that is literally the first step to any of this bullshit is a hello, whether it be a hello to a therapist at the VA or whether it be a hello to a friend, like, Hey, I had a bad day. Literally on the other side of hello could be the exact thing you've waited your entire life. Yeah. I love how you said that in your book. You talked about how, how you talk to strangers. Yeah. Like I, even my, my daughter, like my daughter will like, daddy, why are you waving to random people? I'm like, cause it's a nice fucking thing to do. And it's often like hard when she's four, like you're trying to balance, like don't talk to strangers, but I'm like, I want you to feel comfortable waving and providing that just like, Hey, how's it going? Cause I don't want her to have that weird energy. Like I did that. I didn't couldn't cross that threshold and be like, Hey, how's it going? And I want her to feel comfortable. And even as we're riding by or people are walking, she's like, Hey, hi. And it's, I like, I really enjoy seeing that because I can only fucking imagine how it's going to extrapolate uh, later on in life for her. So Virginia, thank you so much for this interview. I think we just set a record for the longest podcast recording of Military Veteran Dad, but man, it was fucking worth Your it. Your fault. <laughs> it is my fault. But sometimes those conversations just go well. And I mean, this topic, if there was ever a topic to go long on, PTSD is threaded to so much bullshit within what I've been trying to do. So if there was ever a topic to go on steroids and go knee fucking deep into and try to take a shower and try to get off the stink of this topic... This was the topic to go in. So I can't admit, I thank you so much for coming to my life and coming out, reaching out to come on the podcast because this podcast, I am positive, is going to bring many military dads home. Uh, yeah, I love your work, Ben. I really want to encourage you what you're doing. I would encourage, I really would encourage folks to get out there, read your book, read your blog posts um, because it's it's powerful shit. It's, you got some powerful shit out there, man. And I love what you're doing. I love that you're connecting with military dads. Uh, and, you know, I just want to encourage your, your viewers and your listeners, you know, that you can no shit reclaim your life. You can, you can reclaim your life from PTSD. You can get your life back. You can be an amazing dad. You, you can be an amazing spouse or partner. Um, you know, I just want to encourage your, your viewers go to the soldiersguide.com. You can go ahead and download 
for free and just go ahead and get those symptoms, figure your shit out. And, uh, and don't hesitate to reach out to me. Don't assume I have a life because I so don't. And, it, and it it, would the be- most common thing that people get wrong with influencers is feedback is the number one thing that we all cherish. And most people don't give it to us enough. So like, just let us know out there what's going on. And if you go ahead over to the soldiersguide.com, check out that book, let her know how it is. Help let tell her a story about how it accessed a feeling or a thought that you couldn't put words to. Because that's often what we just don't know how to articulate is when you read something, you're like, oh, that's what it is. Like, I don't know how many times I've made like it's 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 not something I want to brag about, but there's a lot of times I'll say something. I'll tell a man like, I think you've been looking for home your entire life. You've just been looking the wrong places and they'll start crying. Like, I don't try to do that. I don't think it's very emotional. But man, when you put the right words and the right feeling and the right time, poof, everything can start changing. And that's what a book like yours could do and help people come home very well. So thank you again, Virginia. This podcast, I know, is going to make an impact out there. Hey, thanks, brother. I really value you. Boom. Mic drop. You made it to the other side of this episode. If you hung on to the other side of this episode, that meant what this episode meant to you was it was resonating on a deep, deep level. The story that Virginia told, the language that she brought it to you, and the way that it was that no BS method of cutting through what people really need to hear. That so many times PTSD is this complicated multi-layer onion as it's presented to veterans. And most veterans see it as something complicated and they would just rather stay where they are and not move forward. To me, my big massive takeaway is that I, myself, the host of this podcast, did not know enough about PTSD because in this episode, being having some of the things that I thought to be true, challenged and reflected back was really eye-opening for me, whether it be the post-traumatic growth disorder or understanding what happens when you, someone does recognize this is the best day of their life or someone that's still way before that trying to get to that point and be like, well, I'm not them. I'm never going to be that. This was a very open and honest conversation about PTSD, and I'm so glad that we had it on this podcast because I know this episode is going to bring many military dads home to their families And the big, big, big takeaway for me was this idea of evidence-based treatment, that it is something as simple as knowing what you need, going to the VA, getting your appointment, going through the process, and coming out healed, that I think, and I agreed with Virginia, that so many people get caught up that it has to be like a child that you raise your entire life, like it's a student loan that you're just going to have with you the rest of your life, like PTSD isn't never going to go away. But I like the hope that she provides that it is there is a way to get through it. And they know how. You just need to go ask for help and know that veterans go through this process every single day. This isn't something new that the VA just started figuring out. They probably figured out how to communicate it better. But this is not something that the VA just came up with. This is something that through statistics and through practice, they've learned they about 80% of the time they can get a veteran back to being normal. So guys, this is your wake-up call to go out there, get into the VA, get your help, get your evidence-based treatment if you know that you're one of those guys that has been holding back and trying to heal because you told yourself, just like some of the stories that she said, well, I'm just going to be this way for my entire life. There's nothing I can do about it. B.S. And so I hope that this was the wake-up call. I hope if you hung on to the other side of this episode that that meant that it meant something to you And now you have a gift to go do something with that and come home yourself. So with that, 
signing off from the longest and most wearing episode we've ever had. And I will talk to you guys again next week on Friday.